Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast. Today on the pod, unions are First Nations communities. Cowichan tribes push back on the NDP's preferred union list. Plus, punted Australia says it'll replace the British monarchy on its banknote with an indigenous design. Should Canada do the same? Plus, treatment or decriminalization. BC Liberals announced their $1 billion mental health and addiction plan. Leader Kevin Falcon joins us. And why are Coldplay tickets already selling for over $1,000 for their BC Place concert? That's all next on the Jazz Joha Show podcast. Let's discuss the NDP's community benefit agreements. Now, they're often referred to as CBAs. Uh, this came out uh, in 2018 when I was actually still an MLA. And the core issue for CBAs was to deliver jobs, training, apprenticeships, uh, and trade opportunities for Indigenous people, women, and youth around the province. Now, essentially, it uses public dollars to, in, in a perfect world, benefit the community of um, underrepresented groups. Now, the criticism has always been that CBAs essentially hand over work to a small group of traditional unions, all with deep historic ties uh, to the NDP. And the criticism has generally been that these projects cost more compared to tendered projects that are open to all in the private sector. Many companies don't bid or feel they're excluded. Now, the Cowichan District Hospital in uh, North Cowichan is a project that falls under the CBA. Recently, we've heard companies owned by the Cowichan tribes have been frozen out of contracts for the hospital because they're not members of a union that the NDP prefers. Now, those unions that I've been talking about, um, from what I've been hearing and calling around today, represent about 15% of building trades. Now, the opposition BC Liberals say because of the NDP's insistence on using uh, these uh, these what they call discriminatory CBAs, um, the cost of the hospital has gone up significantly. The original budget was $600 million dollars. Now it's set to cost well over $1.4 billion, and it is excluding local Indigenous workers. Joining me now to talk about the issue at the hospital is John Coleman. He's president and owner of John Co. Contracting and a member of the Cowichan Tribes. John, thank you for joining us today. Yes, good afternoon. So, John, walk me through, uh, give me a sense of your experience in dealing with the government and trying to uh, find work for your company, obviously, and for your for your employees. Give me a sense of what you've gone through. Well, it's been going backwards, realistically, since the BCIB and the CBA stepped foot onto the hospital site. They said we had to sign up and belong to the union. And I said, that's not happening. You're in the traditional territory of Couch and Tribes. They didn't come to Couch and and negotiate what this looks like. This community benefit program doesn't benefit Couch and Tribes and a lot of the community taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, your company, John Coe Contracting, what kind of work does it do? We do civil construction, land clearing, 
that style of work. Uh, and how many employees do you have when you're when you're up and running on let's say a major project? On a major project, we'll go from anywhere from six to fifteen people, depending on what what is needed. Uh, so in this case, were you in the, on the process of ramping up? Uh, give me a sense of what the, were you blocked right from the start to saying, look, your, your folks, you fo- your employees have to sign up with this union. So what, what had happened was we, we knew that the hospital was, was going to start. So I started tooling up like I just purchased uh, a new 15-ton roller. We we're going to get ready to look at another couple of pieces of equipment. And we went in there, just to be clear, we're, there's a group of us working with Couch and Tribes under the Couch and Development Corporation, KDC group of companies. So we're independent business owners that are Couch and Tribes members. So we, we went in there to start clearing the property. It's approximately 22 acres. We were very successful at that. And we started hauling in the pit run, getting the, the pad ready for the site trailers to come on. As soon as the site trailers were on site, BCIB and, you know, the rulings all started and we got pushed aside. And then we said, well, let's work under a permit. Let's work together on this. This is, this is a community hospital. Nothing. Radio silence. To this day, you know, it's been radio silence. If, if, a week ago, mm-hmm. we were sitting at the ledge, uh, Sonia Fersno and I, and she met with, uh, with Mr. Evie. And he said this was going to be a priority. Well, I don't feel it's been a priority because I've been waiting since October. Uh, and I want to confirm this here. So you're, what, what, in the perfect world, what they would prefer is that your, your employees and yourself sign up to be a member of the union for this project, the, the, the ones that the NDP chooses. Uh, and then once that project is done, you cease being a member of that union. Is the, am I correct there? Correct. And so you. So the other part about it, the other part about it, I was talking to them about was okay. Now, now this BCIB become the employer. They're the ones that pay our employees. And I said, well, what about my other jobs? You know, we're we're currently working at the Couch and High School, the new build in Couch, without any problems. There's no CBA there. And I can't pull my people from the hospital site to that school site if there's a major turn in events. Um, well, we could for three days, pardon me. But how do you run a business trying to schedule if you only have your employees available at three days a shot? And then how are they my employees when they're getting paid with this CBA? So I, 
you're able to obviously work on this project, I'm talking about the hospital, and, and so what you've just said to me is that you want flexibility, the ability to work on the hospital like any uh, uh, person who's bidding for a job, but it's, it's your business as to other uh, um, bids that you've put in, you, you can move employees back and forth as long as the work is being done. So it's a completely inflexible. So in this case, though, you're able to work on this project as a local contractor building the local hospital. You're also... Uh, as you say, a member of the Cowichan tribes. Yet this CBA is not working for you, not working for your employees, and is not working for the Cowichan tribes. I don't think there's any CBA in this province that's working with any Aboriginal bands. I don't see any benefit with it anywhere. Have these unions, the ones that we've talked about, uh, spoken up on your behalf, uh, the ones that are involved with the CBA? Has anybody or any of these organizations that are involved in this project or other projects but involved with CBAs that are close to the NDP, have have they spoken out for you or your community? No, they haven't spoken to me at all. Do you believe that CBAs have a tendency to inflate budgets, that projects do come in more expensive uh, because 100%. of the CBA? 100%. You know, you, you listen to, you know, $600, $640 million in the beginning, and now we're $1.45 billion. Mm-hmm. How do you take something that's four years old as the CBA, four years old, trying to dictate hundreds and thousands of years of traditional territory against Aboriginal people. You're, you're stepping, you're stepping on us. This is no different than having an Indian agent telling you, you can't leave the reserve. You said you spoke to Sonia first to know, uh, I believe it was last week. Um, as the, you said, it was radio silent. Is there any hope in your mind that there can be an agreement found here uh, so uh, you, your company, your employees can get to work? I think what will happen, what would I'd like to see is abolish the CBA. For what? Okay. I don't think it's benefit in the four years that it's been turned on. What has it done? but great hardship for other bands on the lower mainland and other places. Take, for instance, this hospital being built up near Terrace. Is there a CBA there? No, there isn't. Why? Why are they picking and choosing? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it basically all about politics and, you know, getting ready for the next vote? Yeah, you do raise a very good point. The Patullo Bridge is uh, part of the CBA, the Community Benefit Agreement. So those rules apply just as it does to the hospital you hope to be building. But it doesn't apply to the St. Paul's Hospital uh, project that, that is moving forward as well. You're right. It is, it is, it's not maybe perhaps arbitrary isn't the right word, but there seems to be no not rhyme or reason or process that says this project should be CBA and this, sh- this one shouldn't. That just tells me that the management with this whole level of business can't run their office, doesn't know what they're doing at the ground level. When you come into a territory 
the first thing you should be doing is engaging with the First Nations of that territory and how we can give you some input to put people to work. Uh, John, uh, moving forward, so at this point, you're just waiting for a phone call, anything from the government, uh, from the folks who are running this project in regards to a go-ahead or some sort of resolution to this issue. I think the resolution is is that, you know, they've, they've had four years trying to build this CBA, have enough strength to scrap it, because it's not doing anybody any good, but rising costs. John, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you making uh, some time for us. It's a very important issue. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you. In the last 24 hours or so, Australia has announced that it's removing the British monarchy from its banknote. Yes, the, the, the nation's central bank uh, said that its uh, new $5 bill uh, would feature an indigenous design rather than the image of uh, King Charles III. Um, the kings will uh, will still appear on coins uh, that currently bear the image of the late Queen Elizabeth, of course. But the $5 bill was Australia's only remaining banknote to feature an image of the mark, a monarch. Take a look, uh, take a listen to this report from CBS. If cash is king down under, Britain's King Charles is being dethroned. I think that's absolutely brilliant. This is Australia. The new king's face won't replace his mother's, which is currently on Australia's $5 bill. Instead, the government decided on an image honoring the country's indigenous culture. The $5 note will say more about our history and our heritage and our country, and I see that as a good thing. The British monarch is Australia's head of state, but Queen Elizabeth's passing last September is raising uncomfortable questions for royalists, with many folks asking if they even need a king. We're in Australia, we need to be a republic, we've got nothing to do with the monarchy. The Queen's finished, and I don't think Charles is up to it. The Queen's face is still in circulation on more than a dozen currencies around the world. The UK will start rolling out the King's new notes next year, but it's unknown how many other countries will keep with tradition. And not everyone in Australia is glad to see the monarch replaced. I think the Queen is amazing, and we should keep her on a in like loving memory of her. The king's face will make it on the country's coins, but the monarchy's monopoly on money is finally spent. Ian Lee, CBS News, London. So as uh, they said in that report, uh, the monarch's, uh, king, the king's mo- uh, face will still be uh, on coins, dare I say, the monarchy is being nickel and dimed. I promise you that's my only dad joke for the day. But uh, it was interesting that the bank did consult with the centre-left Labour government before they made this announcement. Some have said this is politically motivated. Joining me now to talk about uh, the monarchy and our democracy is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well. Your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, as, as, when I heard this, uh, I thought, you know, that doesn't bother me. That sounds about right. What do you, do you, do you think we, we could be doing, we should be doing the same thing here uh, in Canada? I have a feeling we are going to end up doing the same thing here in Canada. So the debate obviously will be around the $20 bill. That's yeah. where Queen Elizabeth currently appears. And I think we will probably end up doing something similar. We have phased out the Queen over... Uh, much of our money, not on the five, not on the 10, not on the 50, the 100. And I think there are opportunities uh, to celebrate other parts 
of our history and heritage on that $20 bill. I think Canada will also probably follow suit with what happens with coins, is that there will likely be a replacement on those coins for the Queen of King Charles. We can call it the Chuck Buck, uh, (laughs) but uh, we will see where we end up ultimately. But I think it's about a larger conversation. Clearly, Australia has been more engaged, and, and this is not just now, but over the last few decades, they have had more um, prominent discussions around getting rid of their constitutional monarchy, about getting rid of the Queen and now the King as their head of state. We're not there in Canada, but I think the $20 bill is a way to sort of phase out how we celebrate the Queen. And, and I would be surprised if Charles's face ends up on our 20 yeah, I mean, I think the reason I think Australia is ahead of us in this conversation is, is geography, it's distance. They're a lot further yeah. away than, than we are from, from, from the UK. I mean, to a certain degree, the conversation's already begun. We look at BC ferries, and correct me if I'm wrong here, there were, um, there were portraits of uh, Her Highness Queen Elizabeth um, on ferries and, and BC ferry facilities, but they, after the passing of the Queen, they're not going to replace those pictures with King Charles. That they're removing all remnants of the of 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 the royalty. And I think we're going to see more and more organizations follow suit. BC Ferries is unique in this province. It's a government adjunct in essence that they receive financial support or part of our highway system, but they are run independently. But I would expect that we are going to see more outward-facing organizations like that remove portraits of the Queen and not have them replaced by King Charles. I would expect at a place like the legislature, mm-hmm. the portrait of the Queen will be replaced by a portrait of King Charles. But at a place like BC Ferries, where I know you're, you're right to point out that those portraits were removed. I'm not sure any... I'm a regular ferry traveler, Jazz, and I was... When, you and I spoke about this earlier. I was trying to rack my memory if I even remembered seeing the Queen's portrait on the ferry. I can't remember it. So I'm guessing it wasn't in a hugely prominent place. But still, it was a gesture of, of a matter of time that, that had likely been in place for a long period of time. And now that she has died, we are making changes. And, and there's now a concerted thought and effort being given to, you know what, we don't really need this as part of you know our ferry system to show that we are a constitutional monarchy. So I think more and more public places like that, you will see the Queen disappear, not replaced by Charles. Really prominent places like legislatures, I expect that we will see full portraits of King Charles eventually. Once I think it likely will be timed around his coronation. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, I think it also is part of the other broader conversation around reconciliation, and, and others will yeah. refer to it as decolonization, whatever whatever term you wish to use. Um, I, I mean, it's. It, I think the whatever the whoever was to uh, follow Queen Elizabeth was always going to have a difficult time in to represent the monarchy. And what I mean by that is that she has reigned for so long. And has and did it with such so much class and dignity that it's very difficult to replace someone with that much historical weight uh, and with the broader conversation that is going on in democracies like Canada and, and in regions like uh, British Columbia that it would be very difficult uh, for us to continue the way we are. I guess partially also you can also talk about immigration. I mean the the, yeah. the folks that are immigrating this country yes they're coming from all over the world. But so much of it is driven by Asia, predominantly China, India, the Philippines, the Middle East increasingly as well. And it's difficult to point to a monarchy, a European monarchy, 
that I think it's going to have a difficult time justifying its legitimacy over the long term as demographics in this country continue to evolve. And the allegiance here was largely to Queen Elizabeth and not to the crown. And, and over time, as generations grew older, it was a stronger affinity to who she was as an individual rather than that position she holds. And, and the values around that have changed. I think you look at public opinion polls and uh, Charles is not a particularly popular person here in Canada. Um, and there's less of an attachment to the monarchy, but there isn't a widespread movement to detach ourselves entirely. It's just we don't need to be reminded of it constantly. And if it's tucked away in our coins in our pocket, that's okay. But I think Canadians don't want to be overwhelmed by these photos of who this person is that we didn't vote in, that is not a huge part of who we are. And I think the, the immigration piece, Jazz, is so crucial that people are moving to this country for what Canada offers not for what we offer as uh, an extension of the United Kingdom. It's a celebration of our country, our province, British Columbia, and not one link to the monarchy and to the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Richard, thanks for your time, my friend. My pleasure as always, Jess. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since Tuesday, uh, as you're all aware, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, our province's three-year pilot program to stop prosecuting people for carrying small amounts of heroin, uh, meth, ecstasy, crack, two and a half grams or less. We've had a significant conversation and debate on this show. We had former Mayor Kennedy Stewart uh, speak to us, Jennifer Whiteside, our our, uh, present Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, uh, Vancouver Police Department's Deputy Chief Fiona Wilson uh, joined us as well. And they all broadly have been supportive of decriminalization. There's been a lot of questions, uh, concerns and opinions uh, offered by all of you listening out there to this issue. There is uh, uneasiness out there as well in regards to decriminalization. Is this the right way to go? Should we be headed in this direction? Are there other ways or other models to look at? Uh, The other day we had an open line call from a woman from North Vancouver named Denise She lost her uh, brother uh, to fentanyl. She also uh, was an addict for many, many, many years until she uh, was able to, um, you know, deal with her substance challenges. And now she's leading a, leading a very productive life. She was on the show yesterday. She's working. Uh, she and her partner own a home. Uh, she is healthier. Uh, and we asked her about the issue of, of decriminalization. She was a guest on the show yesterday. Take a listen. As a former heroin addict, I can tell you illicit drugs are not safe. People didn't just start overdosing seven years ago. People were overdosing constantly in the 80s and 90s. I can list off 30, 40 friends at the top of my head who all overdosed in the 80s and 90s on pure heroin. 
And I really wish people would talk about the state of mind people live in in addiction where they can't hold a relationship or a job or self-esteem or take care of themselves. So why are we just constantly feeding them drugs to keep them in that perpetual state of despair? So as you can tell uh, by uh, Denise's comments, she is not in favor of decriminalization. Well, yesterday we also had another gentleman join us on the show. His name is Andrew Tablotny. He's a Richmond resident, uh, and he lost his son in December, just uh, well, just uh, December of 2022. So just a, a, just over a month ago, uh, his son was dealing with some psychiatric challenges and used drugs to cope, uh, and uh, he had a lot of practical responses. He's not necessarily against decriminalization, but he says it can't stop there. There has to be other practical responses uh, and resources needed for families, including using uh, pharmacists for drug treatment as well. Take a listen. Why aren't we looking at our pharmacists? To get your drugs tested, you have to go downtown to 888 East Hastings Street or mail them in and wait a week to get your results back. Well, why can't we have test strips in every pharmacy in the province? They could have a little sign that says, do you or any members of your family suffer from drug abuse, or sorry, addiction or mental illness? And then they could have brochures with, with accurate information so they, that people, they could hand to them and say, here, I don't know everything about it, but here's the people you need to call. Andrew had a, a lot of other examples that he had listed off as well. But once again, uh, just an everyday citizen dealing with the issues of mental health and addiction, and, and it's uh, had a huge impact on, on his family. Well, joining me now is BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, who just a few hours ago introduced his government's plan, which one would probably describe as more recovery-oriented in regards to mental health and addiction. The price tag would be $1.5 billion over three years. That includes $995 million for treatment and recovery. Recovery options, $350 million for complex mental health support, $100 million for homelessness, and $525 million in capital spending. Mr. Falcon also said earlier today that his plan would roll out within the first 90 days of a B.C. Liberal government. He joins us now. Kevin, thank you for speaking to us today. Well, thanks very much, uh, Jazz, and uh, what a powerful opening there by, you know, with those comments by Denise and Andrew, and I just couldn't more wholeheartedly agree with both of them, quite frankly. I, I should tell you, as you know, I've spent a decade uh, while I was in the private sector on the board of the Street Home Foundation uh, volunteering on the issue of homelessness and those struggling with mental health and addictions. I've traveled out of the country. I've looked at other programs, therapeutic communities across North America. We had board members that were traveling to places like Italy to look at uh, San Patriano and some other places that have had some really promising results, Portugal, etc., And I'm just absolutely convinced, absolutely 100% convinced, that if we don't shift in a totally different direction from where we're going now, it's going to end very, very badly. And I think the results are all around us. How does your announcement today, how is it different from what we are doing today? We have treatment beds, to my understanding, about 3,200 NDPs. They've added about 320 since 2017. Uh, How would this system today fix what needs to be fixed? Well, the first thing is, here's the, the, the big shifts that, that I'm talking about in terms of moving um, in a dramatically different direction. The first is recognizing that there are some folks out there that are struggling with severe mental health and addiction issues. And I've always said, you you know, I've said this two years, over two years ago in an opinion piece I wrote in the Vancouver Sun before I'd ever gotten back into politics, saying that we have to look at a modernized version of what we used to call Riverview and Essendale and Tranquille. Uh, we've got that uh, a version of that now at the Riverview lands. It's called Redfish. Something started under the BC Liberals, 
and it deals very compassionately in an apartment-like setting with those that have severe mental health and addiction issues. But there's only 105 beds. We need to triple that. And as I said in the announcement today, we need to have regional centers like that in the north, in, in the Kootenays, in the, uh, in the uh, Thompson Okanagan, and on Vancouver Island, because we have to make sure that we treat those most vulnerable in our communities much more compassionately than we do today. We cannot leave people on the streets fending for themselves, unable to make, uh, at this point in their lives, proper decisions in their own best interest. That's where society has to play a role. Now, number two mm-hmm. is on the addiction side. Um, the focus of the current government, I think, is unfortunate. And the entire focus is totally about what they call safe supply. I, call, I, I won't call it safe supply because, as physicians are constantly reminding me, there's nothing safe about highly addictive drugs. I call it publicly supplied addictive drugs. And the thing is, that may be part of the spectrum of, of, of care, for sure. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But there needs to be the primary focus of government ought to be helping people get off of their addiction and get into treatment and recovery. And that's where I'm going to be focusing the, the dramatic uh, shift in direction. Because I can tell you, um, Denise, that you heard earlier there, I met with a, a whole group of uh, of women this morning before my announcement, all of them, some of them just as, as recently as last year were in intense cities living absolutely horrific lives. And today they're in recovery. They're doing well. They've got their children back. They're working and they're just feeling so great about being productive members of society. Let's never lose sight of how important that is to the human spirit. Uh, are you skeptical of decriminalization? I mean, I think a lot of people are very empathetic. They want, obviously, help. But there are folks that remain skeptical about decriminalization. Where do you sit? It's all well and good to say I support it. But are you skeptical about it or at the very least uneasy about it? Well, a little bit uneasy if I'm totally honest. But, but you know, I've always been an evidence-driven person. So, you know, when I, uh, when I was Minister of Health back in 2009-10, you know, I was open to the Salome and Naomi trials that we did with heroin addicts, you know, trying to use uh, substitutes uh, to see if that, that could help. We got sued by the federal conservative government at the time. But I'm always willing to try things because I care about outcomes. The thing about decriminalization is effectively what the police will tell you is it's been effectively decriminalized anyhow. But unfortunately, what it does now is it doesn't even allow the police to seize uh, some of that stuff because sometimes... You know, taking it away and 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 uh, not in, you know ensuring that person uh, might not overdose by using that fentanyl or heroin or whatever the the particular drug of choice that they have in their hands at that moment could potentially save a life. In Oregon, as we know, um, when they decriminalize hard drugs, a year later they had a 39 over 39 percent increase in deaths. So I just think we have to very carefully watch and see what the outcomes are. And darn it, we better listen to what the outcomes are because what I'm concerned about is. We, every year we see the overdose deaths going up to a record level every year, and government just says, let's do more of the same and hope to get a different result. It's illogical. Yeah, I think it raised a good point there. You know, I had Fiona Wilson on, the Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department, and she was telling me, they had, I think last year they had three recorded uh, arrests uh, in regards to uh, hard drugs, the two and a half grams or less, and I think they were averaging about five a year. So effectively, we've, de- we've been decriminalized a lot longer than people think we have, even though it is official as of Tuesday, um, number one. But even she was saying to me that, look, uh, she wasn't, her members are at times were uneasy putting people away 
putting them in jail, arresting them, knowing full well that's not where they should go. And I think police officers deep down know that. But having said that, I'm listening to you, and I think you make a good point, is I had friends going down to Oregon not too long ago with their kids watching uh, the Portland Trailblazers basketball game, expecting to go there for two nights. They were back after one night because it is such a mess down there with homelessness issues, mental health, and addiction. That is, it is not some panacea even after decriminalization uh, in, in communities like Portland. My question to you is, is this your this program that you've introduced, is this a, I want to call it a ripoff, but very much um, inspired by what they've done in, in Alberta? Uh, yes, in part. I think that what they're doing in Alberta has had some pretty tremendously positive results. Um, not everything they do there I would subscribe to. Um, I think there's a spectrum of care that you have to provide. Uh, and harm reduction is part of that. I want to be clear about that. You know, but, but again, we have to get back to the focus of our primary overwhelming focus has to be trying to help people get off of their addiction. Look, this is a passion project for me. I, I should tell you, Jazz, you know, full disclosure, I've lost friends. Uh, family members have been impacted, like so many others out there, through mental health and addictions. And, uh, you know, if you read the book San Francisco, you look at what's happened to San Francisco. You look what's happened to Portland and Seattle. I am not, I'm, and I'm seeing Vancouver going right down that path. And damn it, I, I tell you, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that we're helping people get better. Just being alive is not necessarily better. As, as one of the uh, you know, addiction specialists told me today, just having a heartbeat's not enough. A productive life where you ha- feel like you have purpose and meaning is also really, really important. And I, I just think we can't lose sight of that. Well, I look forward to having further conversations with you on this issue. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. Such an important subject. I appreciate you covering it. What you're listening to there, of course, is Coldplay, probably the best-selling music acts of all time. Uh, they, of course, have had many world tours, and they announced uh, another world tour not too long ago. Uh, the British band will be performing uh, in Vancouver at BC Place on September 22nd and 23rd. The only Canadian stops on their world tour. Yesterday, we were uh, talking in the office, and somebody brought up the issue of ticket prices and uh, and our producer Stephen Chang uh, was looking up those prices uh, on um, on the internet and um, the numbers that he came up with these are for platinum and standard tickets sold through Ticketmaster in Vancouver uh, ticket prices range from $435 uh, to $809 yes you heard that right 435 is the cheapest 809 and that's not on the resale market. In Seattle, they're seventy-four dollars and fifty cents to five hundred and fifty-five. So it got us to asking why are ticket prices cheaper, broadly speaking, in a different range in Seattle than in Vancouver, in a mere two-hour drive northbound. Well, joining us now is Kingsley Bailey, general manager of VancouverTicket.com. King Kingsley, thank you for joining us. Uh, Jazz, thanks very much for having me and. Uh Asking my opinion on the problem uh, in the ticket business. Yeah, it's a broad one, and we've covered the uh, Ticketmaster and its challenges in the United States. And I know uh, they had to testify in Washington not too long ago, and it's an ongoing issue. But your thoughts, first and foremost, for you know fans who who, who love Coldplay, they've uh, they've got uh, two shows now, the twenty second and twenty third at BC Place. Why the disparity in ticket prices between Vancouver and Seattle? Well, Jazz, there's a couple of points that I want to point out. There's a few. There, there's a few things that makes this happen. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost, we got to look at the U.S. Justice antitrust lawsuit against Ticketmaster and Live Nation in the U.S. 
It doesn't encompass Canada. So you got to look at that as well. Is I, I really think they're trying to tread lightly because that is a serious lawsuit that they are being faced with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Canada, uh, I, all I can do is go back to uh, the report that, uh, that was um, done regarding the ticket selling uh, by our NDP government in 2018. I thought that that was going to bring out some transparency in the marketplace. It didn't. I, uh, and so that's, that's disappointing. Well, uh, but the, the U.S., they've got some serious teeth. And uh, they're they're taking a bite out of these guys. Yeah, I mean, you, this is a government hearing, and, and some have said, "Look, there's going to be a lot of preening by elected officials. Uh, they're going to, you know, uh, go after Ticketmaster. It's an easy boogeyman. No one likes Ticketmaster. Um, so there's cheap points to score on the political end. But what are they going to do to fundamentally reshape and change the ticket business, short of blowing it up? And many people have said it should be blown up. Uh, it's just gotten too big. Um, in your mind, has it gotten too big in the U.S.? I mean, just even here, I mean, should Ticketmaster be blown up? And once again, we sort of reset again in society and have a variety of ticket sellers. Is that part of the problem as to why we're paying a certain amount for Coldplay here compared to Seattle? It is, it is exactly the problem is there's no transparency. And, and when you have an on sale for a show where there's less than 30% of the available tickets goes available to the general public, we got a problem here. And as long as Ticketmaster, apparently I just read a report that a Ticketmaster has lobbied, have lobbyists, have paid more for lobbyists in the last five years than they have in the first 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you've got, when you're that much of a behemoth, you basically dictate policy and what uh, what you want implemented, and it's unfortunate that uh, the guys that are getting hurt are the small guys that want to go to shows. Mm-hmm. I'm curious uh, how much of this thing has, also has to do with the fact that there's probably more Coldplay shows in the United States rather than Coldplay, and I think this is their only stop in in, in Canada at this point. Yeah, it's their only stop in Canada. And another thing too is. We are so starved for really good entertainment, and they can get away with that. But it's, like I said, there's a couple points that we really have to stress on. It, it has definitely got to do with that, um, uh, that legislation, uh, the antitrust legislation and being in place in the U.S. Hmm. Um, I think had their prices been very similar to what we're paying now, I think that that would uh, make a major, major news. For, and, and, and so you think that, that, that on the corporate side, they're treading lightly a little bit just because of what's been what's transpiring um, uh, in, yeah. in, in Washington. Um, how much of a role do you think artists have? I mean, uh, Coldplay has a tremendous amount of pull, power. Um, some have argued that in many ways Ticketmaster is set up to be the boogeyman for Live Nation, to be the boogeyman for artists who also would like to see these prices at where they're at, um, and that uh, they'd rather have Ticketmaster put up with the abuse rather than you know an artist having to do so or somebody else. How much of this is do you think the the ticket the the the, the artists themselves perhaps not putting their foot down a little bit, saying this is ridiculous, the ticket prices shouldn't be this high. Well, I think what's happening in the in the very beginning, when before they became such a behemoth, they were complaining that the ticket brokers, uh, scalpers, were making too much money, mm-hmm. and so they just wanted to find a way on how they can uh, control that marketplace, and they've done that, and it's called dynamic pricing. And that's another point that I want to bring out is dynamic pricing. So they're trying to justify dynamic pricing is because uh, there's a, a huge demand, so the prices go up, but True economics means that there's also a floor. There's no floor. 
but they've created an artificial floor saying the price can be as much as we want, but this is as, as low as it can go. And that's not a, that's not a true market. Mm. If you could fix something, what are the one or two things you would do right now? You've talked about dynamic markets, dynamic pricing, sorry. Uh, what would you fix to, to at least bring pricing to a place uh, where it is uh, is certainly viewed to be a lot more fair? I'm not saying ticket prices are going to come down dramatically, but they should come down a little bit. What are the one or two things that you'd like to see done? Uh, first and foremost is transparency. If the if the general public is able to see exactly how many tickets are going on sale for a show, they can make their decision whether they're going to buy it or they're going to wait. But by having all this information secretive and nobody really knowing the exact number of tickets that's available to the general public, and like I pointed out earlier, it's thirty percent at it's at the most. Uh, if the general public knew that, they would probably say, you know what, I'm going to wait. Um, I'm going to wait until the prices come down. So sorry, because you're saying you're, you just want to didn't mean to jump in there, but you're saying th- of the tickets that are available, let's say for a show like in Vancouver, only thirty percent are available to the public. To the general public, yes, on an on sale. So where does the, where do the rest go? Uh, they go to their VIPs. They go to their uh, uh, their event sales. Uh, but to the general public on an on sale, there's less than thirty percent of available tickets. And I've read many reports on that, and uh, 30% is the number. And with with no transparency, the general public doesn't even know uh, if the show is really selling out or if there's only 30% of the tickets being sold. Well, I don't want you to give me your state secrets here. How do how, how does someone like yourself or resellers like yourself get access to so many tickets? Well, it's not, you know, we, we, we do it just like everybody else, but... Here's the other thing, and here's another point that i got to point out is hmm. they keep blaming bots. Well, if you're controlling the tickets and you've all of a sudden created a platinum and gold pricing and everything else, where are the bots getting these tickets? Because you are actually basically reselling your tickets as a, at a platinum price. Hmm. I mean, so, <laughs> but at the end of the day, people are still paying, though, aren't they? Yeah, they're still paying because there is no transparency to really know if a show is really sold out or not. If if you go to an on sale yeah. and you're there the first minute of the show and the only seats that are available are way up top, the last rows in the balcony, you're going to think, oh, this is selling out really well. But if you were to find out that only 30% of the tickets are available for sale, you're going to go, well, I'm not buying these seats. I'm going to wait. And what that's going to do is that's going to slow down their sales, and it's going to make them realize that uh, we better put all the seats out at one time and make it happen. Now they're trying to under the guise by saying, oh, the Taylor Swift situation happened, and we just could, it was, we were overwhelmed and we couldn't handle it. Well, you know, how do we really know if only 30% of the tickets came available? We don't know. Okay. Kingsley, thank you for your time, my friend. It is an interesting uh, uh, issue. We're going to call you back one day, have you back in uh, to talk a little bit about this issue at, at a greater length. Thanks so much for your time. Jazz, I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. Right now, let's talk about Netflix. Now, Netflix has um, about 100 million accounts, they believe, that are actually shared. They have over 200 million customers, but about half of them, they believe, those 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 accounts are shared. And in many cases, people share with their friends. I've run to many people at this office and other friends as well who may loan their um, password to a friend or a family member uh, and vice versa. You give somebody their Netflix account, somebody gives you the Disney account. It's an ongoing issue. 
to the point where Netflix, uh, at one point, which was encouraging password sharing, uh, now says they're going to crack down. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, um, Netflix and many other streaming services now talking about password sharing is Andy Barari, tech and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Good afternoon, Andy. Hi, Jazz. Hello. Uh, so let's touch on this a little bit. Uh, first of all, how do you crack down in your mind? Can, is it technically possible for Netflix to actually do this successfully? Well, they've been trialing it in South America right now in three different countries, uh, Costa Rica, Chile, and Peru. And they're, they're kind of treading these waters carefully, Jazz. As you can imagine, they don't want to alienate their customers, but they do want to crack down on this password sharing which is a far cry from what they tweeted five years ago when they said love is sharing a password. (laughs) (laughs) That tweet did not age very well. It's amazing when uh, when Wall Street changes uh, their opinion of you and start uh, selling some of your shares, all of a sudden password sharing is a no-no. Exactly. If it doesn't make dollars, it don't make sense. And so that's why they're they're trying to crack down. But like I said, they have to tread these waters carefully. And now we finally know they actually um, accidentally leaked it out because they were trialing this out in South America on their health center. They leaked out exactly how they plan to do this worldwide. Essentially, what they're going to require is that if you have a device, say it's your tablet or your smartphone, mm-hmm. the primary account holders home Wi-Fi. That device has to log into that account at least once a month. And that's how they can tell if that device is being shared inside the account holder's home. If it's not, then you're going to get an email to the account holder with a four different code that you would have to enter in. So they're creating friction points now and and using the home Wi-Fi as the test to know that, that you are, in fact, um, a family member in that home where that Netflix account is being registered. So uh, I'm just trying to see how this would work. So if I have a home Netflix account, which I do, if I were to let's say log out uh, in and out from my computer, my home computer, that would be considered a login then? Yes, that, okay. that's fine. And then and if somebody else, let's say another family member, let's say if you, uh, you have a son at school, at, let's say a university state living on a dorm, wanted to use it on an iPad, they would be able to use it. They will, except they're going to have to come visit you once a month, Jazz, and, and have dinner and log into that Netflix account at home for it to, to understand that that is a home account. That's the crux of it is because typically, you know, you would share your account with your coworkers or maybe your partner mm-hmm. and, and that they would be able to access it. By, by making them go back and making that device register at the home account, they're trying to curb and, and stop the password sharing. It gets really tricky when somebody's using it on a smart TV at their house because what they're going to do, pick their TV up and bring it to your house, log on to Netflix and then bring it back home. So by creating these friction points, what they're hoping, and they're going to actually encourage people when they when they suspect that that person is not part of the family, they're going to try to roll out their new profile transfer feature where you could take all of the stuff that you've watched, your history, and then move it on to your own separate account. So they're treading these waters carefully. They don't want to alienate their customers, but they do want to add additional feeds. So if someone's using your account on the primary holder, say a son or daughter, and they've moved to college, you can add them on for about $3 more a month. But the, the days of password sharing, that, those are coming to an end. So, so if you have a family of four, a mom, dad, and two kids, would each one have to log on separately then? Well, they're going to be logging on to the home Wi-Fi at some point oh, okay. in time. That's so okay. that that's how they can tell that that you are a family member. So if and it gets really <laughs> tricky, Jazz, when you start traveling, 
because after seven days, they might actually ask you to, they'll send you an email and you have to verify your account once again. So it gets tricky for people that have, say, two different residents. Maybe they're, they're traveling a lot or they're on a business trip and you're over seven days. You know, the, the, this is where it could actually frustrate people and they might choose to cancel Netflix and go to the other options. But the, all the other alternatives are going to follow suit now. And so this, this whole notion of, you know, bartering passwords, I'll give you my Netflix for your Apple TV Plus. Those days, I think, are, are coming to an end. And also, what's going to happen with VPN services with this new feature? It's going to be very hard for them to verify if you're using a VPN because you can't tell your IP address. So, um, yeah, a lot's going to change, and this is all going to happen in the next three months. I have a VPN at home too, so and, and I and it it goes through Canada, and I think it's safer here. But uh, that could also mess up the the algorithm, make it more difficult. You don't want it to be onerous for yourself, and the minute you add in all those sort of technical hoops you have to jump through, it can. Um, it can frustrate people where they just go, I give up. I'm just not going to bother cancel it. I guess the other thing at the end of it as well is then the commercial side. They, you can still get a cheaper version as well uh, in regards to an ad-supported tier. But I think that defeats the purpose of streaming, doesn't it? Well, the ad-supported streaming services are here to stay. So what, what they're basically saying is that you can, you can stream all these shows if you want, but you have to watch ads. It's like we've gone full circle again with cable television, except we're just getting it differently. However, if you don't want to pay, if you don't want to watch those ads, you can then pay for a subscription to avoid those ads. But the thing is, Jazz, and I've been thinking about this, you know, people are so used to watching Netflix without ads. Just the notion of watching ads on Netflix might, might bother people enough for them to be like, you know what, I'm just going to switch or maybe they'll just go to YouTube which is free and you can watch ads, but even YouTube wants you to get a subscription. So on YouTube premium. So everyone's trying to get us onto these subscriptions and they certainly don't want us to be sharing our passwords with friends and family. But with the the high cost of living right now, you have to wonder if people are just going to move to the ad supported streaming services mm-hmm. or, or, you know, just cancel their Netflix altogether. Yeah, that's part of it as well. I mean, it does add up after a while. You, you, people still even, you know, they'll have a basic cable plan at home potentially for local news or whatever it may be. Then you add Netflix and Amazon and Disney Plus and uh, Apple Plus. Uh, I'm curious, um, you know, in the U.S., they, they, they have Hulu as well. They have Paramount. They have others as well. I mean, is there going to be a shakeout, do you think, in this industry? Or we, do we still have too many uh, streaming services? Well, we certainly have a lot of choices. And when Netflix first started, you know, there wasn't many choices. It was just Netflix. That's, you know, we had the term Netflix and chill for a reason because that's all we had. But when you have players like Amazon, Apple, Disney, those are heavyweights. They got a lot of money. And there's more scripted TV shows being produced now than ever before because they can actually look at the data of people's viewing habits, use that to determine what kind of shows they should make in the future and what actors to put into the shows. They can use all of that data that Netflix and all the other streaming services have to create content in the future. But that costs a lot of money. And if people are sharing passwords, like you said, over 100 million out of 230 million Netflix subscribers are already sharing passwords, they're going to crack down, but they let it go for so long that it, they might just actually alienate a lot of the viewers that are long, long um, standing Netflix subscribers. Yeah, I, I think you're at, your your assessment about treading lightly is uh, is bang on because it is it, it, it's been encouraged for so long. That's the other thing. It's not like they've just turned a blind eye. They've encouraged it themselves. And now for them to come and say, wait a minute, you can't be doing that. And if they make it too onerous, uh, I think it is going to turn people off because, number one, people are also looking at their um, – 
at the bills every at the end of each month and they look at all those streaming services showing up on their credit card bill with Netflix or Amazon Prime or Apple or Disney Plus it does add up on top of their local cable it, it's significant so people will definitely look at that Andy thanks for your time my friend thanks Jess for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. <laughs>